On this special episode of the ASC podcast with John Gailey, we meet with the leadership of the New York State Association of ASCs during the spring 2021 virtual conference and discuss New York State ASC issues and interview various speakers at the conference. Welcome to the ASC podcast with John Gailey, the longest running podcast specifically focused on the freestanding ambulatory surgery industry. This episode is sponsored by Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. The ASC regulatory environment is increasingly challenging, but organizations that outsource their regulatory oversight to Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies have an edge. HS works with ASCs to oversee their quality improvement program, run their meetings, develop educational programs, and always be prepared for surveys. For more information or to schedule a consultation, visit our website at ah-strategies.com, email us at info at ah-strategies.com, or call John Gailey directly at 585-594-1167. Welcome to episode 134 of the ASC podcast with John Gailey for June 28, 2021, recording from our studios in Spencerport, New York. This is Susan Cronkite, Chief Researcher for the ASC Podcast with John Gailey and a Senior Nurse Consultant for Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. Joining me is John Gailey, the owner of Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies and recognized as one of the nation's leading experts in the ambulatory surgery industry. Mr. Gailey is the author of over 10 books on the ASC industry and a frequent industry speaker on regulatory accreditation and finance issues. So we had a great opportunity to uh, present the uh, New York State Association Ambulatory Surgery Center's virtual conference Mm -hmm. uh, earlier this month in June. And Mm -hmm. we had an opportunity to interview the leadership as well as uh, do like a roundtable with some of the speakers there. So we had a lot of fun, didn't we, Sue? Very interesting. And it was a great conference, even being virtual. And I did get to try out my new... Uh, sound effects <laughs> yes. board here, as I've been speaking about quite a bit lately. But we did have very good attendance, excellent attendance, almost close to 100 people at one point. Mm-hmm. So um, it, so even though I think people are tired of virtual conferences, they're still attending them and, you know, hopefully learning a lot from it. Yeah. So it was a great conference. We did have some technical problems, and you might experience um, a little bit of, of uh, sound quality issues during the recordings that we have here. But if you are a member of the New York, uh, New York Association and you sign up for the conference, you also have access to uh, recordings, uh, video recordings of the, the conference. So uh, if, if you are a member, make sure you visit the website and, and log in with your uh, credentials and you should be able to have access to that. So our first speaker was John Van Volkenberg, who is the president of the association. So let's listen to our discussion with him about uh, what's going on with the New York State Association. So I'm here with uh, John Van Volkenberg. He's the president of the New York State Association of Amateur Surgery Center. Sue and I uh, have interviewed John quite a number of times in the uh, the last uh, – man, how long have you been president, John? Uh, it feels like it's been forever, but I believe it's we're going on four years now. Or about really? to finish up three or four years now, so it's it's been a little while since 2018, I guess. Yeah, and it's been an easy ride for you. You really haven't had much to do during those uh, four years, right? No, no, it's it's been it's been very uneventful. <laughs> Obviously, since I'm sure you can sense the sarcasm. At, yeah, right. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's it's been a crazy three years. You know, a, a lot of difficult things, but a lot of a lot of great things as well. A lot of great developments with the state association. Right. Well, thank you for all the work that you've done. Uh, 
you know, I work with a lot of state associations and uh, you you literally communicate with the membership, I would say, on a daily basis, which uh, is incredible and it's extremely, it's very much needed by our membership, I think, with everything going on. And of course, we're in a difficult state. I mean, all states are difficult, I think, right now during the pandemic, but New York has certainly had its share of challenges during this time. Yeah, absolutely. And that's something that we really, you know, when, when the, you know, we've always... Um, uh, at least since since I've become president, we've really tr- focused on trying to increase communication with our members. Uh, once the pandemic hit, you know that's where we really we ramped it up to to being daily, or in a lot of cases, multiple times daily, just yeah. because as in from new information was coming out quickly, a lot of questions. You know, I was getting a lot of questions from member from members and trying to, you know, trying to respond to them individually. But obviously, that's inefficient, and time consuming. And what we've, uh, you know, what I found is that the best thing to do is a lot of people had the same questions. Right. So, you know, obviously if we just update people on a daily basis and get all the information we have out there and when we respond to questions, uh, you know, do it in a way that, that, that we're relaying that information to all of our members. Um, I, I, th- I think it works really well. And we've gotten a lot of great feedback since we've been doing that. And obviously, you know, Capital Health Consulting uh, has been a key player in, in assisting us and with our communications and, and with growing the organization. Yeah, they've been a great partner, and that was one of the best decisions I think the board made in the last four years is bringing them on board, and they certainly were extremely instrumental during the uh, the pandemic. So we just finished our second virtual conference. It went off very well, uh, pretty much without a hitch, and the uh, program committee is already working on uh, the fall conference, which will be in person, yay, finally, yes. uh, down in Terrytown. Yeah, we are uh, very excited. You know, this is something – uh, you know, all through the pandemic, you know, the programming committee, and, and I, I know you're involved with that uh, for, for the state association, uh, we've been trying to figure out how we can, uh, you know, we've really missed getting together. Uh, we did also uh, last fall, uh, did a virtual conference when we couldn't get together in person. As you know, and, and maybe uh, not all your listeners know, New York State uh, historically has done two conferences every year, in-person conferences, one in the spring and one in the fall. Um, last spring, we had to cancel the already planned one for the spring 2020 because of the pandemic, obviously. And in uh, really, you know, in addition to dealing with everything that was going on with the pandemic and trying to assist all the ASCs in, in New York and, and dealing with the changes and, and everything surrounding the pandemic, you know, we really wanted to, to continue that. Again, we had, uh, with, with your help and with the help of, uh, of the rest of the committee and our members, we put uh, a virtual meeting together last fall that went really great. Mm-hmm. We got a lot of great feedback and we were hoping at the time to be in person this spring. Uh, I think that was probably a little bit ambitious, but yeah. I know you know Jeffrey and, and he's a pretty yeah. ambitious guy. <laughs> Um, obviously, uh, you know, I think once, once the spring rolled around or late winter, you know, we realized that, that it wasn't going to be able to happen as, as soon as this spring. So, you know, put together a virtual, another virtual conference, which like, uh, like you said, we just had a, a couple weeks ago now, I guess it was, uh, June 11th and or 10th and 11th. Right. And, uh, it was a two day virtual conference. I, I agree. I thought it went out went off without a hitch. Um, all the feedback I've gotten from the attendees has been overwhelmingly positive. Uh, also a lot of excitement around, um, what you mentioned, you know, we've planned our fall, uh, in-person event. And, uh, to my knowledge, it's going to be one of the first in-person events, I think, you know, within the ASC community, I know mm-hmm. there's some other, um, planned in-person uh, conferences for this fall. Ours is September 29th and 30th, uh, in Terrytown, New York. And we're, we're really excited about it. Um, you know, we feel confident 
um, with where the state's at with regulations right now and distancing and, you know, whatever might be thrown at us. Uh, we have the space and, and I think the resources available at that conference to, to comply with, with whatever the requirements might be at that time. I know now it's almost requirements off for, for that type of event, to be honest with you, uh, yeah. restrictions off, but, um, but we'll see what happens this fall, but we're really excited about it. In fact, the people, you know, our attendees from the virtual conference, you know, a lot of them are excited about it as well. And we've already seen that. And just in the, in the 10 days since we had our virtual conference, we've had about half the attendees to the virtual conference already register for our in-person oh, conference this fall. So again, you know, I, I think everybody wants to get back together and, you know, get that networking piece going again. Obviously we've been able to do a lot with education and communication with our members, but you know, one thing that's really hard to do virtually is, uh, you know, get together and, uh, and have a cocktail and, uh, you know, talk uh, and, and really get to know each other so that we can develop those relationships um, among the among the leaders of, of ASCs in New York State. So talk about uh, the benefits of uh, state association membership. Certainly, uh, you've already mentioned a couple of them, the uh, access to the conferences and kind of alluded to those uh, daily, uh, and they truly are almost daily updates that you send yeah. out. But what else? Uh, well, and, and also talk about how it really benefits the industry. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the benefits of, uh, of membership for our members, I, I think, are plenty and they're growing. Um, you know, as you mentioned, uh, you know, the daily communications and the newsletters. We also, every other week, it's a, it's a, um, a bi-weekly. Capital Health Consulting has a legislative update call where we go through uh, what's going on in this New York State legislature and, and any bills that uh, have been introduced or anywhere in the process, whether they're in committee or introduced or being voted on. And they they really have a finger on the pulse there. And it keeps us as facilities aware of, of what's going on and what might be coming down the pipe and really give us the, the opportunity to be able to react or to be able to opine or, or to, to take effect on some of that legislation. And also so that our members know what's going on and we're prepared to react as things come. Um, and, you know, in addition to that, as you mentioned, the conferences, uh, you know, our conferences, we do invite non-members to come as well. There is a there's a significant discount to the conference for being a member. I guess I would say, you know, if you're going to come to the conference, uh, the discount you're going to get as a member is uh, the dues of membership uh, will pay for themselves with regards to that alone. Um, in addition to that, we're also working on, uh, we're actually working on some new and exciting things with regard to uh, communication and an organization we're working on an app, I guess, um, you know, where, uh, where, where members can communicate with each other and we can more easily communicate from them. As you know, we rely a lot on email right now, yeah. um, which, you know, is, is, is great. Obviously that's how a lot of people used to communicate, but uh, you know, as technology adapts, there's, there's better forms of communication and, and things that people are more used to with regards to apps and, and things like that, where we can really kind of uh, communicate a little bit more directly with each other and also just have access to more resources as far as who other members are, who people are. You know, one thing we found through the pandemic, uh, which I think has been great for our members and, and really great for our industry, is we've seen relationships uh, develop among our members in, in certain regions. And ASCs have really bonded together to, to kind of react and to deal uh, with this pandemic, whereas, you know, before, uh, you know, obviously we talked to each other and, and, and we got to e with each other at meetings and everything like this. But, you know, now uh, these relationships, cooperative relationships have developed where, you know, you have ASCs in the same region talking to each other about 
best practices and, and, and what they're doing and how they're responding to these types of, uh, of things and uh, in, in those local communities. And, uh, and I think that's, that's been wonderful. Actually, I've, there's been some success stories of, of members that have reached out to me and said, you know, this has been great. Yeah. I've really been able to develop some great relationships with other ASCs and, and, uh, and it's, it's been really beneficial and it's mutually beneficial, yeah. uh, you know, when you have those types of relationships. And that's one thing that the state association fosters. Um, and then, uh, you, you know, you also mentioned, you know, what we do for the industry. I, I mean, uh, you know, certainly there's, there's benefits of being members, but it's important that you really all ASCs join the state association, or if you're in a different state, join your state association, because, you know, collectively is the only way that we can really have uh, an effect uh, on so many things that affect us. Uh, and that's, you know, legislation, uh, regulation from the Department of Health, uh, you know, ASCs individually are, are very small and don't have much of a voice. But when we get together and, uh, and we have a unified collective voice, then we, we do, we can, we can absolutely get the audiences that we need to be able to spread our message and to make sure that everybody knows what an ASC is and what all the benefits that ASCs provide to, to patients and, and to the communities where they practice. And with the help of Capital Health, we also have um, a line of communication with uh, the state legislature and, of course, the governor's mm-hmm. office with regard to mm-hmm. upcoming legislation and even trying to push through and stop legislation depending mm-hmm. upon what the needs of the industry are, are correct? Yeah, that, that's absolutely correct. And even beyond that, you know, we also have a meeting coming up. We're working with the, the New York State Workers' Comp Board mm-hmm. um, as well. And we've worked with them in the past and, and working with them again to talk to them, um, you know, about things, you know, like reimbursement, about how we can get about how, you know, one thing that their goal is, is they want to increase access, you know, for, for beneficiaries, uh, you know, as do a lot of payers and, and as does the state. And, you know, our messages is, well, there's certain procedures that we still can't do in ASCs for workers' comp, for example, because they're cost prohibitive. You know, they cost more to do than what the reimbursement would be. And that, you know, that by adjusting that appropriately, uh, you know, there would be an opportunity for actual, you know, for, for significant savings uh, to be able to take some of those outpatient procedures, what are being done inpatient out into outpatient or taking out of the hospital and, and into ASCs. And that's already being done, obviously, with Medicare and total joints and other things like that. So and, and they realize that. But, you know, they're the workers comp board and, and they need um, they need input from from ASCs, really. And, and that's what we're doing. And that's why we're meeting. with them. So I think there'll be some good developments there as well. Can you uh, tell our listeners uh, how much it costs to become a member and how do you go about doing that? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, membership in, in the New York State Association is very affordable. Um, it's $750 per year. It's We go by calendar year. So I, I know this year what we've been doing for new members is um, we're allowing a new member for $750. That's going to be their 2022 dues. And that will provide membership from now through the end of the year and then through all of 2022. So basically, you know, you're getting 18 months of membership for $750. And then, you know, again, ongoing, it's it's $750 a year. So uh, again, I think most members would agree that, that that's very affordable, you know, even, even for smaller facilities. You know, I, I think relative to other state associations and the national association, it's a lot less. And I think you're getting a lot of bang for your buck. So to me, and it's not just speaking as the president, but speaking as a surgery center administrator, um, it it really is is a no brainer. It's it's something you must do because uh, I think the value and the benefits well exceed that dollar amount. Mm -hmm. And then on top of it, it's really that money's going to, to help our industry 
And uh, any help that's being provided to our industry is being uh, provided to all ASCs and and obviously our members in particular. And I can't emphasize enough how important it is to support both national and state initiatives. It's not enough to be uh, a member of one or the other nowadays. Really, there's so much. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are two. And it's, it's interesting that, you know, there it's two different two different yeah. beasts, really. I mean, you're dealing with the federal government, you know, the, the National Association deals with the federal government and everything around that. Medicare. And uh, Medicare. but obviously there's 50 states and every state is so different. We were just talking about how different things are in New Jersey, yeah. which is right next door. And, um, in, you know, in, in they, they can't focus on those things. You know, that's the, they're, they're serving the, the ASCs throughout the nation. So, uh, you know, the state association is so important because to be honest with you, as ASCs, I, I think you'll find regulation and legislation in states affects us in much bigger ways than the national um, yeah. legislation and regulation do just because, again, it's it's different. It's different in every state. And, yeah. you know, who knows what they're coming up with, uh, what they're coming up with next. But, uh, and unfortunately, with, with legislation and, and probably even more so at the state level, there's unintended consequences. And, and sometimes that's why it's important for us to kind of take a look at what's being proposed yeah. and to bring to the attention of the people making the decisions that, hey, this is going to have an effect on ASCs, for example, even though that's, I'm sure, not the intention of the legislation. A lot of times that can happen and they don't they don't see it. They don't realize it. And it, it really becomes incumbent upon us because we're the only ones that are going to say it. If it's something that's yeah. going to negatively affect ASCs and, and and that's not the intended consequence, but we know it is because we operate ASCs and, and you know, we can say, hey, look, this is a problem because here's the effect it's going to have on ASCs and make sure we educate them on that. And again, the state association is really the only ones that are going to be doing something like that, particularly when it's something that affects ASCs specifically. Well, and over the years, you and I have been involved in the battles with regard to office-based surgery centers trying to get uh, reimbursement for uh, a technical component, basically, of the facility yeah. fee. And then more recently, the uh, ongoing issue of trying to uh, force surgery centers to have a certified infection control coordinator. That's mm-hmm. something that we're, uh, we know is on the horizon, but we're trying to make sure when it does happen, and it probably will happen, that it's done in, in a way that's, uh, that's going to work for surgery centers rather than you know, more complicated way like it is in New Jersey, for example. So all of those things yeah, are absolutely. things that we monitor as part of our legislative initiatives. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and it, like you said, it, it, it could come from many directions. So, and that's where Capital Health Consulting comes in. I mean, they monitor these things. Yeah. In fact, they, you know, I didn't even know um, personally because most of these things happen without much fanfare. Uh, in a lot of cases, a lot of these bills and, and, and sometimes not even bills, even just regulation changes that are done, for example, at the workers comp board level. And, mm-hmm. you know, there, there was a change that was being made that I think overall was positive for us, but I think needed to be addressed in different ways. And that's what I was referencing with the workers comp board. And, uh, you know, they brought it to my attention because mm-hmm. they're keeping an eye on these things. That's that's what they do. And we got to keep a very close eye on the HERO Act, which is coming up, which uh, we have no regulations for. It's been signed into law, but uh, we're waiting for the regulations to know exactly how that's going to impact us as well as any other. Uh, the HERO Act doesn't just impact uh, right. health care. It, it impacts all businesses. All employers, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and to be honest with you, uh, that's something that, that we've been looking at since it's been passed. And again, waiting for some type of, uh, obviously, the legislation has been passed, but lo- looking at what the regulations are actually going to be and and how we're going to comply, but you know we're ready to do that. And I've already talked with Capital Health about 
you know, once we do get more information that we need to know how to comply, you know, putting together kits for our members that just kind of assist in compliance with things like that. A lot of that stuff is just going to be plans and, and documentation and posted notices and things like yeah. that, that I think we can, uh, we can kind of help with, because like you said, I mean, it's going to be, it's a very general, you know, piece of legislation that's directed at all employers and obviously is going to have different impacts on ASCs than it would on grocery store or something like that. And that's yeah. where I think a lot of, you know, the state's going to put out templates, you know, to assist employers in complying with it. But my guess is, you know, those, those templates are going to need some tweaking to really be applicable and, you know, for an ASC. And that's what we're ready and prepared to, to do as another benefit to our members. Plus, there'll no doubt be overlapping regulations that we'll have to deal with. So. Oh, absolutely. Stay tuned. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, John, as always, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for your time and thank you for everything you do for the State Association. You're welcome, John. As always, I'd love to join your show and and, and talk to your listeners and and listen to your show as well. Um, So thank you very much for all you do for the industry and also for your service on the New York State Association Board and our programming committee. And uh, we're going to see you in in September. I'll see you before then, (laughs) but we'll definitely see you at the the New York State in-person fall conference, September 29th and 30th in Terrytown, New York. And if anybody has any questions about membership or about uh, the conference, you can email info at nysaasc.org. Uh, that's our general uh, informational email address. You can send an email to that about anything. Um, but again, we'll get you more information if you're interested in membership or the fall conference. Sounds good. Thanks so much, John. Thank you, John. And next, we interviewed Jeffrey Flynn, who is the program chair. Let's listen to his discussion about how we put together this program for the spring. And he also had a great conversation about what's going to be happening uh, in the fall when we have our uh, Roaring Twenties uh, mm-hmm. in-person conference out in Terrytown. Let's listen. So Sue and I are here with Jeffrey Flynn, who is the program chair for the uh, the spring virtual conference. Hopefully, uh, Jeffrey, this will be the last virtual conference. No, I mean, I, I guess we're kind of enjoying doing these virtual conferences, but this better not be the only type of conference we have in the future. Can you uh, can you talk a little bit about how uh, we put this together and uh, how we figured out who, uh, who to bring in as speakers? Absolutely. Um, what we've been doing with this is trying to find out what relative um, uh, topics – our members want to hear. And certainly you've been an active member of that also yeah. um, in, yeah. in seeking out different speakers and, and hearing from different centers from your clients. And then also talking with a number of the other centers around the state, we wanted to put together a program that people really could get, find informational. As I think we are, we are slightly virtual conference fatigued. Yeah. And we're certainly looking yeah. forward to our fall conference, <laughs> but this has been an excellent um presentation each day and very informative in each of the sessions. It's gone very well. The feedback has been wonderful. Yeah, and thanks so much for all the hard work you have putting us together. Talk a little bit about the challenges that we're having right now with our uh, our wonderful sponsors, too, for the State Association. Oh, and you know what's funny is a lot of them are looking forward to getting back into in front of us, and we've had some challenges just kind of finding a way to include them. So we really didn't charge our fall sponsors for this particular, we didn't ask for any sponsorship for this particular virtual conference because we wanted to focus on the members. So though they're going to participate in the virtual cocktail party and there'll be opportunities for them to say a few words about what they're going to do and how they're going to present in the fall, we're really looking forward to them uh, in the fall. 
I think we're going to have our largest number of sponsors for the fall as many companies are now allowed to travel again and getting excited about going out there again. I certainly know that I'm very excited about traveling again. I absolutely. <laughs> getting in person with people. Yeah, drinking with all of our friends is always a lot of fun. So uh. yes, <laughs> yes, and our group's a fun group. We all know that. We so. do. That. That's right. Yes, I, I get no sleep during those conferences. It seems. So let no, so to that end, let's talk about the fall. What do we got planned? You got a roaring twenties theme, which you know, I, yes. when you mentioned yesterday that we're in the twenties, you know, a hundred years from the the last twenties, I, I completely forgot that this is the new roaring twenties. Go ahead. Yes, it is, because that followed a pandemic, too, and it followed a decade of tremendous growth and prosperity. And specifically to our industry, I think COVID has put us in a situation that we're about to be farther expanded. And, you know, this is the ambulatory surgery center's time. It really is going forward, and I think we're really going to prosper. And actually, I think COVID made people recognize that we are really the effective answer to a lot of areas of um, in healthcare. Um, So we're having a conference on September 29th and September 30th that's going to be held live in Tarrytown at the Sleepy Hollow Hotel and Convention Center. Um, We had a conference there in 2019. Right. Uh, So we're looking forward to returning there and then getting back to our larger things. We're going to have four tracks because we think we're going to have a lot more members going a lot of issues coming up post-COVID, and that's what we really want to focus the conference on is to the future, the future in the next several years of where healthcare is going, how ambulatory surgery centers fit in that, um, and hopefully we put COVID-19 in the back rearview mirror. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we were challenged. We were trying to get the state to come out and, and uh, do some more uh, some presentations with us virtually here, but that was that was not possible this time. But you're you're working hard yeah, to bring I, them in in the fall, right? Yeah, I think by the fall they will. Right now, it's just they're still so intense on just the recovery and COVID that nobody from the health department really is being allowed to go out to speak. They're really being directed to their their set duties. Um, We've seen even the regional um, CON person here in New York has been almost inundated completely on um, COVID issues. Right. So she's virtually been given a double job during the past 14 months. So we're looking forward to them returning to the conference and the relationship we've developed this past uh, few years with the, health department has been wonderful and we're hoping that they will have a help table like they had at our 2019 conference so everything i think is looking forward with that and those challenges we're hoping are over by september well and again we want to i, I know I, I i haven't interviewed john yet i'll have john talk a little bit about the state of the state association you are the vice president of course of the association let's just finish by uh, encouraging people to become a member uh, not only for the wonderful conferences and the ongoing conferences uh, that we do, but also for all the other benefits that come from state membership. Oh, and, you know, that's true. And one of the things I noticed, and especially during COVID, we really did, and you certainly were a big part of that, we really became more of a tight-knit community. Yeah. And it's one of those things now that people, you know, we're here to exist together. And I think we realize that more than ever. And the benefits of being able to call up you know, there's that there's a thousand years of experience within the board of directors and everybody's very happy to talk in other centers, what works in different centers, what doesn't work in different centers. Um, you know, some of us that are closer in vicinity to each other have started kind of sharing staff 
yeah. you know, with challenges and figuring things out with that. Those are all the benefits that the state association really does want to impart, only, not only advocacy for our roles, but to be helpful in still promoting that community that we've really been strong with. So as a vice president of the association, I really do urge uh, centers in New York State to become members because it, there is a tremendous amount of benefits. And, you know, if we're a phone call away from any issue you're hitting, if you hadn't dealt with that, everyone's willing to help. And, and absolutely reinforcing, again, the importance of coming together. You know, we'll, we'll try to have some virtual options for the fall, but that's nothing like being there in person, sitting next to your colleagues, being able to get their telephone number, and then just talking uh, even, you know, casually about what's going on. You develop deep relationships. That's, you know, that's how you and I became friends. It wasn't because yes, we talked absolutely. on the phone. It's because we uh, we drank together and, uh, and yes. I had to hear your <laughs> laugh everywhere. Um, <laughs> yes. You know, but, it's funny you say that. I've always said that if you sit down at one of these conferences with somebody across the table from you, just we're in a unique setting that within yeah. two or three minutes you've connected in a conversation because you're living the same life. That's exactly and so right. I think that that's coming together. That just makes us stronger. As always, Jeffrey, it's been a great uh, pleasure having you on the podcast here. And uh, um, we'll uh, look forward to seeing you live uh, in, the, in the fall. Yes, we're looking forward to having the podcast uh, at the conference live and coming out live from there. Thank you very much, John. Thanks. Thanks. Take it easy, Jeffrey. Take care. Okay, let's take a short break. And when we come back, we'll listen to Lisa Altieri, who gave us a regulatory update for New York ASCs. Thank you for being a loyal listener of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey. But did you know that you can enhance your experience and support the free podcast by becoming a patron member? Patron members have access to ASC Central, an add-on service at a very reasonable price. Patron members have access to our regular drop-in virtual meetings where you can discuss issues that you are dealing with in your ambulatory surgery center with the hosts and other members. Members also have access to valuable member resources, including a, a document library with a growing list of resources, including the rules and regulations, guides to maintaining compliance, example policies and procedures, infection control resources, example risk assessments, example committee and governing body minutes, and over 60 disaster drill scenario kits and example forms and checklists. Members also have access to some of the virtual conferences that we have presented, including the Provider Credentialing Conference, which we offered in December 2020. It's a New World Conference in 2020. Infection Control in-service to meet the challenges of COVID-19. And the ASC Mandatory Education Program, which is a valuable resource for annual education for your staff. Membership helps to defray the cost of producing the podcast, including the research staff, travel costs to conferences, equipment costs, and production costs. For more information, you may visit ASCPodcast.com. To become a member, visit ASCPodcast.com. Things have started to change quite a bit in uh, Albany right now, as everyone may know or may not know. So our agenda today is we'll just go over briefly the highlights of the 2021 legislative session, uh, the resolution that actually got approved yesterday, which was memorializing um, August 
as the Ambulatory Surgery uh, Center Month in New York State. So overview of the key legislation, overview of some of the other public health legislation and things that you may want to know or you may have questions for later. Um, the regulatory landscape. So what's going on in Albany? What's going on within the Department of Health? And really, what do we think is going to be changing and the focus, where is it going to go on a go-forward basis? A lot of you know that if you have an ASC, you have to go through CON and FIPIC, and there's a lot of different changes happening right there um, at FIPIC. So um, after this, we'll have a few minutes, hopefully, for folks to actually ask any questions. So legislative session. So we started off um, session. Session really gets kicked off when the the governor comes out. It's the first Wednesday uh, after the first full week in January, in which the governor kind of kicks everything off and the legislative legislators come to town. This year, it started on January 6th. And, um, and then we literally go through session where you have two to three days when they come into town and get out of town. Um, generally, the first few months is all about budget. Budget really starts really around August, September, and October. So that's when discussions are happening about things and priorities that folks may want to see in the budget. But the actual focus on the budget that the governor puts in, the executive budget, we actually start talking about in Albany with the legislators and with the governor's office and the agencies, Department of Health, about things that we like, don't like, and then other ideas. We present those other ideas to the legislators to see if there's things that they would like to put in their one house budget bills. So, and then after April, so after the budget passes, which is um, needs to be due in New York state and balanced on April one, after that, then we start the non-fiscal issues or things that won't really have a price tag to them. Usually session ends in New York, usually around the, between like the, the third week in June, 19th to 20th, around there. Uh, this year, it ended early. That being said, they still talk about coming back, which they may come back to take up a couple of different issues. And then we go to July and December. As I mentioned, um, that's the time that you actually start looking at pieces of legislation you wanna work on next year, talking to people in their districts, Staff are still out there working from the legislative districts and you're meeting with the executive staff about things that you may want to consider for the following year. So the retrospective from where we were six months ago to where we are today and the light at the end of the tunnel. I have to I can't go into talking to you about um, session and the budget and legislative session without talking about COVID. We all know COVID hit us in 2020 and everything really shut down. That first year, there were no meetings. Everyone was just trying to figure out how do you connect virtually? And that first year in 2020 was really rough. This year, while it was better and there were, we had actually ironed out some of the communications and how you talk to folks, how you have meetings virtually, I will tell you it still is not the same. And especially when you're trying to talk to everybody via Zoom, or the phone and you can't meet. So it's been, it's still been a really rough year for anyone that does this. Um, thankfully, you know, we have a mix of folks that used to work in government. So it makes it a little bit easier because we have a lot of those contacts, but it's really difficult. 
So uh, January, the state was facing a $12.5 billion budget deficit, as we all knew. Everything that goes into New York State, especially coming from the city, really just put a hamper on the budget. That and then a number of different things um, that we actually collect taxes from, that also got shut down in 2020. So that all affects what's happening with the, the state's budget. The COVID-19 vaccinations began, as we know, the end of December coming into January. And the legislature, once again, for the second session, um, came back to a virtual session. So in February and March, um, we thankfully had Congress passed and President Biden um, signed the American Rescue Plan, uh, providing New York State with $12.5 billion. This was critical. So as we're all trying to work on items in the budget and the state's trying to figure out where they're putting dollars and where they're going to cut dollars, it's critical because everyone was kind of at their edge of their seat waiting for what's going to happen at the federal at the federal side. Because if we didn't get the money that we were hoping to get, which was originally we were hoping for $9 billion or $15 billion, which is what the governor wanted, if we didn't get that, there were going to be a lot of cuts. And there were lots of discussions on where that was going to happen. Um, we knew that we were gonna have some cuts to uh, you know, Medicaid. And we also remember what they had, that they had done before with the MRT2, where they had those cuts in place already. So we knew that this second year, remember Medicaid has a two year budget cycle. So this is the second year of the health budget we knew there could potentially be more cuts. So that 12.5 really kind of kept us right on the edge of our seat till the end. And the governor and legislator focused on the enactment of the budget, which actually went over budget. So April 1, we were uh, $212 billion state budget enacted. So it was over where the governor was. Um, we were all a little surprised by that, but it happened. Um, and so, you know, one of the things was that there was a lot of arguing going on at the last minute. Some of the questions were, were we not going to make the, the deadline? Um, as everyone may have remembered, um, certain things the legislator was saying, legislative staff and legislators were saying, we're not going to talk about and put things in the budget that are really policy heavy or policy laden. We want to take those up after the budget. And in some ways they did do that because you saw that the cannabis, right? The adult use uh, marijuana bill did pass before the budget did. That was on purpose because they felt if they tried to get it into the budget, they would have lost it. So, and it was very policy laden. That's why they did it. So lots of discussions going on. And I will tell you since the budget passed, there's been a lot of, um, policy discussions, um, many different people trying to get things done, uh, some progressive agendas um, across the board. We saw a lot of scope of practice pieces of legislation coming up that we actually for the first time thought would actually get legs. And I won't go into those in, in any, um, any specifics, but if folks have any questions, you can always ask us. Um, so in April, we had, uh, you know, the start of like looking at everything towards the end of session and those bills that were non-budget related um, and the vaccinations started to ramp up. So even though everyone else 
in the world was focused really on legislation. Anyone that lives in the health and human services world, we still had a lot of other things going on, not just legislation. So it was still busy for everyone. May, uh, the legislature continued their work. And as everyone knows on the call, vaccinations ramped up, eligibility slowly started to open up, and the New York State was opening. Now, June, we are at 69.2% vaccinations. And so when we hit 70%, everything gets lifted. And as I said, uh, the legislature is basically dismissed, adjourned as of today. So the Senate finished last night around 9.30 p.m. The Assembly didn't get out of Dodge until 4 a.m. this morning. So lots going on still at the last minute. Um, so as of the number of bills introduced overall, as of last night, were 14,738. The number of bills passed by the Senate uh, was 1,559. Uh, the number of bills passed by the Assembly, 1,054. Both houses, 892. And the number of bills signed into law so far, 112. We've had two bills vetoed, and there's a number of bills passing, um, passed both houses that aren't yet delivered to the governor, which was 771. So lots, lots getting done. Recognition of August. So this was actually a really great thing. So one of the things is this is so in line with where I think ambulatory surgery centers are. So prior to COVID, ambulatory surgery centers have been growing. There's been discussions at the Public Health and Health Planning Council, as many of you know, um, discussions about different types of ambulatory surgery centers, as you all know. But, you know, on an ongoing basis, you know, at one point, hospitals are saying there's a lot of ambulatory surgeries coming up, you know, and questions were raised by Dr. John Ruggie uh, at the Public Health and Health Planning Council in, uh, I think it was 2020, early 2020, where he said, you know, Ambulatory surgery centers coming into certain areas of the state where there's only one hospital could actually, uh, I'll say, uh, soften the stability of a hospital system. And so there were lots of discussions within the Department of Health. What's that going to look like? And so ambulatory surgery centers, the whole reason I'm explaining this is ambulatory surgery centers is, are growing. Everyone recognizes good quality very good outcomes, excellent infection control, and you save money. And so, and the most important thing in my mind, besides safety, is customer satisfaction. So there's a lot of recognition that they're coming and everyone supports, especially the Department of Health, them continuing to come forward because we need them, especially where we're going with um, health policy and how we actually roll out uh, serving more individuals and patients. So the reason, you know, it's important is this year, even when there were some questions about how people were going to get reimbursed and some pushback um, for the hospitals, you know, in some of the reimbursements, which I'll mention in a little while, um, for the ambulatory surgery centers versus the hospitals. And we know that there's a little pushback from all hospitals in general. It's important that we were recognized. And so in August of this year, there will be the Ambulatory Surgery Center Month in New York State. This is excellent. So Senator Rivera, um, the chair of the Senate Health Committee, Assemblyman Godfrey, 
who is the, the standing chair for health in the assembly, um, both actually uh, put this in for us. And it states, memorializing Governor Andrew Cuomo to proclaim August 2021 as Ambulatory Surgery Center Month in the state of New York in conjunction with the observance of National Ambulatory Surgery Center Month. Whereas the state of New York takes great pride in recognizing certain months of the year in the hopes of increasing awareness of important medical conditions, education, treatment, and care. And whereas it is the sense of this legislative body to memorialize Governor Andrew Cuomo to proclaim August of 2021 as Ambulatory Surgery Center Month in the state of New York in conjunction with the observance of the National Ambulatory Surgery Center Month. So it goes on, it's done. So this is actually a really great thing that we actually still, we got this um, uh, this recognition, given how late we got into the session and one, knowing where some of the other folks feel um, with the competition of ambulatory surgery centers. So key legislation that's passed. You know, some of these we've talked about on our biweekly calls, but it's important that we actually, we, we actually just mention them again. So the Sanders-Dinowitz bill requires insurers and health plans to cover screening, examination, and laboratory tests for colorectal cancer consistent with the American Cancer Society. This is a bill that um, we know we have PE, so we have the colorectal um, folks that are on, you know, that are participating and are members of the ambulatory surgery centers. One of the things is that we really kind of worked really hard on this bill, uh, getting it to the medical society, get it to all the other specialties to sign on, as well as the ambulatory surgery centers. We signed on to this as well to support this. Um, it did pass the assembly. It does not pass the Senate at this point. The Rivera Godfrey bill. Um, this actually provides that if a proposed midwifery birth birthing center meets the standards of national accrediting organization, um, that it is recognized by the Department of Health and then is proposed and shall be deemed to meet New York's requirements. If for those of you folks that actually participated throughout the peak of COVID on our daily calls, this is something that we proposed to the governor's office and the department was in the midst of COVID, we were really trying to identify where where are patients when they're going into these hospitals that we as ambulatory surgery centers could serve, um, even though we may not have emergent types of cases, we could still serve a subset of the population safely, healthy um, in the pandemic. And so this was something that actually was raised and it looks like it's probably gonna be moving forward. It passed both houses. I do expect this will be signed since Melissa DeRosa who is um, tells the secretary to the, the, the governor. Um, she was actually on the task force that brought this up after we submitted it to them. The next bill, Rivera Godfried, um, requires a healthy equity assessment to be filled in with the application for any, any CON applications, right? So, and it, what it really is getting to is things that I believe are already required as part of the certificate of need application. How does this affect the community? How does it affect the patients? What's the need? How does it add and improve the access to healthcare in the community in which it's going to be built or served? And so um, again, this passed both houses. I think this was really done based on everyone's identifying 
the racial disparities and some of the other disparities that we saw as part of COVID. So I think we, this was added uh, to just to, to really beef it up. Um, and then Prasad and Williams, um, this was to actually requires the Commissioner of Health to communicate all rules and regulations to govern the practice of all upper endoscopy procedures and prescribe an upper endoscopic patient bill of rights. Um, this still remains in both health committees right now. So this hasn't been picked up. Key legislation, um, the Harkin-Bronstein bill. So this provides that the first opioid prescription to um, any particular patient uh, year, each year, um, that actually has to be accompanied by an opioid antagonist, Narcan, if they have any of the following risk factors, SUD history, high doses of cumulative prescriptions, and then con concurrent use of opioids, benzodiazepines, and sedative hypnotics. This is actually passed both houses and it's pending uh, to be signed by the governor. So the scorecard, the, the issue and the outcome. Uh, so these are some of the other things that we've been tracking and trying to keep everyone up to date on. Uh, Patient Medical Reduction Act. So this was basically trying to improve the transparency and the billing um, around facility fees and disclosures to uh, patients. And it's applicable to hospitals, hospital affiliated systems and healthcare providers. So, you know, that's something that's actually we've been tracking. Um, the safe staffing in hospitals and nursing homes. So all of these things that have been actually, we've been tracking, we've been updating everyone. So a plug for the association, for those folks that may be participating that aren't a member, these are the things that we go over. So even though it may not affect, specifically affect uh, the ambulatory surgery centers, we do try to share it because there's a number of things that it could affect. And the more folks that are paying attention, the better off everyone is in the association. Um, so the safe staffing actually has de been delivered to the governor. The New York Health Act, which is one single payer, um, that remains in committee. The CRNA scope of practice remains in committee. The OPMC reforms not adopted in the budget or post-budget accession. Um, and then telehealth, there were some minor changes but the full parity and some other items um, did not move. So regulatory landscape. There are, again, lots of positives that happened this year, um, I believe, for the association. Um, one of the things that came up, which we know about in COVID, was that in COVID, a lot of folks that were going through their regular scheduled, regular screenings, normal procedures that they get done at the ASCs, didn't, they all had to put them on hold. One, because we could, the ASCs couldn't work, right? Because if things weren't emergent, you couldn't, you couldn't um, operate. But besides that, a lot of folks were scared. And a lot of folks that were waiting for certain types of um, treatments, surgeries related to chronic diagnosis or acute diagnosis, um, they could actually be put off a little bit. And I, I let me just correct myself, not acute, um, but we'll say, some things uh, would kick it postponed. And what started to happen was what we all realized would happen is that we had an increase in certain types of cancers, the stages of cancers, um, which we may have had earlier detection for. Additionally, a lot of people put some of those other surgeries off. Um, in New York State this year, um, the Workers' Compensation Board issued emergency regulations on March 12th. 
And they basically amended certain portions of the um, New York State Codes of Regulations by adding a new section, which actually updated uh, the fees for 29 procedures. And, uh, and those performed in a freestanding ambulatory surgery site or a hospital-based ambulatory surgery site. The reimbursement of the fees for those procedures will no longer be paid using the normal APGs um, that's been in place since 2019. So we looked at those and this was a positive thing. Um, and we also reached out uh, as an association. We actually spoke to, um, in a letter, we actually put comments to this, this emergency regulation that were out publicly. We gave comments back, the, the policy basis for it. We explained while we agree with the 29 that there may be some other things we'd like to talk to you about. Um, and some of those are, most of those were all orthopedic. So there may be some other um, uh, surgeries that we'd like to, or procedures that we'd like to address. Um, and we also think that it's important that we have an opportunity to sit down. So we sent all of those comments in and we will be scheduling a meeting coming up with the workers' compensation board. So this is something that's really important. The association, you know, it's really, I, I always tell this to all of our all of our clients, but you don't want one or two members. You don't want to stick your neck out and say, hey, you know, this one, th this procedure I don't do, but you know, or you're not including my procedures. So I need you to include them. You don't want to stick your neck out by yourself. So if you're coming together as an association together, collectively, you have so much more strength. And I believe in 2020, when COVID hit, the Department of Health and the hospital associations recognized the strength of this association because they included, they adopted some of our ideas. They reached out to us during COVID and they looked at, these are some of the things that we need to make sure we're paying attention to because ambulatory surgery centers are a place where we need to have people and patients getting services. So this, I believe, is something that's very, very important. Again, as an association, you are with your group and your colleagues. You're not sticking your neck out on your own. It's an important thing. It's a reason why I think we should have more members. So. FIPIC. I've mentioned it. I've, we've talked about it. I've given you some of the reasons why I really believe there's a lot of focus on ambulatory surgery centers. So when I was in the Department of Health and we were focused on how do we, the Burger Commission, how do we change MRT, all those different things, we were trying to identify how do you get the right costs and the right outcomes for patients while improving access. Well, that's an ambulatory surgery center. We also know that the overhead costs of having big hospital systems are expensive and they have to run 24-7. So that was one of the reasons there was a, there's been a big push and support from the Department of Health and from health policy makers because it just makes sense. So overall of um, the discussions in Public Health and Health Planning Council, FIPIC, um, a lot of the discussions have been you know, do we want all of these coming in place? Are they cherry picking cases? You know, do they get more money than we do? Do they get the same amount of money than we do? So there's always been all these ongoing conversations. And 
we've had a lot of opportunity. We've actually come, we went to the table in 2019, 2020 to talk about some of the things that the department and, and FIPIC were discussing. And we know that they're continuing to be approved because there's a lot of support. So when the workers' compensation, you know, when some of these rates start coming out and people are looking at them and asking questions if they should get different, if they should be getting the same fees, and FIPIC's talking about all this. Most recently, at the last FIPIC meeting, two more ambulatory surgery centers were, were approved. And uh, Dr. Guterres, uh, chair of FIPIC uh, Committee on Codes and Regulations, basically said um, that he had just had his surgery at an ambulatory surgery center, and he urged DOH and FIPIC to give consideration to have ASCs available or made available to provide emergency services during a surge. I think what he said, too, was he was attacked by an orthopedic um, uh, because he had emergency surgery. So we expect that there's going to be ongoing changes and there's going to be opportunities for the association to actually speak to FIPIC. We also know that there are a number of ambulatory surgery centers that continue to get approved every two months as you see them to go to uh, the final vote. So I think this is really important to keep in mind. And again, during COVID, ambulatory surgery centers stood up. They were there and they've been recognized and they've been counted on for being some of the folks that were actually there that were willing to step up and help the state, the commissioner um, on how we could actually get more care out to patients, even if you weren't open. Okay, questions from the audience. We do have one question. Yep. Uh, I have heard that there uh, there is regulations from DOH on mandating the older surgery centers to comply with the physical plant codes. Is this true? I think what they're referring to is is um, is, is there something from DOH saying that they would go back and and not grandfather uh, older surgery centers for some of the newest life safety codes. So I will tell you. I'm not going to speak just specifically to that question because I'd have to talk to my friend Udo. Um, at the Department of Health. I will tell you that the Department of Health and CMS is actually becoming much more stringent on not grandfathering things in and not giving waivers for certain things. Um, so that's been a huge issue coming up across the board. So um, I, I do think as we continue to have more ambulatory surgery centers, um, I think that could be a question. And something that may be raised um, at the Department of Health level, if not by FIPIC. Well, following with that, uh, and of course, you have been talking to Udo about some of the issues uh, surrounding uh, our life safety, emergency um, uh, electrical systems and things like that. Yeah. So generator backup power yeah. and right. And some of these things. battery um, operated systems. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I have to tell you, it, and it depends on where you are in the state. And John can probably tell you that, too. Um, it depends on this, where you are in the state and which surveyors are coming in, because that's definitely been an issue. So um, just as an aside, we've had a couple of DNTCs or um, folks that have actually said, well, they wanted emergency, they wanted an emergency generator. Uh, and then we've been working with the department to say, how about the emergency battery backups, right? And the different levels of backup that you need. I don't want to make across the board what's happening. 
only because I'm still getting some complaints from across the different areas of the state that different surveyors are asking for different things. What I will tell you is that there's a lot of focus on, besides infection control, is all your life safety code, emergency preparedness programs, um, your disaster plan, everything that has to do with your disaster plan, evacuation, backup, staffing backup, um, you name it, and infection um, outbreaks. One of the things that happened that's brought a lot of questions and discussions um, kind of around the health policy discussion in regards to life, life safety and infection control besides COVID has been some of the emergencies. Like, so for instance, in Texas, when we had the ice storm, right? So while it, it generates a lot of discussion at CMS where they start to review this, there's been a lot of discussions within the Department of Health on where do we have to get tougher? So I think there's going to be some ongoing conversations here. What I would suggest is that if folks have some difficult surveys where there, you think that there is something that may not be, um, it may be regional, maybe a regional um, uh, citation du jour or a regional, it may be different, it might be differently cited or viewed in one region from another. You know, please always reach out to John, reach out to the association so that we could try to see if that is the case and, and if we can help. Um, John actually, you know, John Guiley and some other folks, is when some of our members have had problems with getting their operating certificate or getting, right, or getting some of these other things done, you know, it's, it's, it's not really hard for me just to reach out and get that, uh, make that happen for you guys. Um, I think we've been pretty successful in, in doing that for the members. Right, John? Well, and, and actually, I, I do want to thank you because every time I've had to reach out to you for that operating certificate, it has not been, I think the longest time was 48 hours. And that's probably because there was a weekend involved. So that you, you have been great in helping us out with that. And I, I you know, if you, uh, and that's the benefit. Actually, I'm not even sure that those were state association members at the time. Uh, they they certainly became afterwards because, uh, you know, we showed the benefit there. But I appreciate the the help you've done. We've had a couple more questions here. Sure. Uh, well, looks like one question. Uh, Lisa, can you speak to New York State requirement for certification of technicians who perform sterile processing? And she's meaning, does it apply to those in an ASC or just acute care hospitals? Well, it, it applies to ASCs. Okay. So I can't speak to this. I'm, I'm assuming that John can. Yeah. Yeah. It, um, this requirement has been around for a while. It's been around since 2015. Uh, any, uh, with the exception of endoscopy, which is not sterile. Um, so the, the state does require you to only employ people in sterile processing that are certified. There are exceptions. I don't want to go into the complexity of some of those exceptions there. Certainly reach out to us if, if you want some more details. There is an exception for endoscopy that they don't actually, I don't know if I'd say an exception, it doesn't apply to endoscopy um, technicians. So, uh, And by the way, while we're on the subject there, at the same time that legislation came out, that was when the surge tech uh, regulations came out that required surgical techs to be certified uh, also. There is an exception for people that work for more than a year prior to January 1st, 2015. So, you know, I, I, until there's some more questions coming in, which I'll have, you know, John or any of the panelists, uh, any of the folks uh, let me know about, I think it's really important. I, I can't overemphasize um, 
the position that the association's in right now. One of the things that when I was in the Department of Health, um, we didn't get a lot of um, calls and questions from a lot of the ambulatory surgery centers or folks coming in and meeting with us. Uh, it was really at when they came in for approval, when we were at FIPIC that we kind of had to deal with that. So I think what's really important that I kind of come back to is that during COVID at the peak, when the, you know the governor was saying that they were going to look at using anesthesia machines for ventilator for ventilation, they you know they were having some struggles. You know the commissioner's office and the governor's office reached right out to see like you know can you guys help? And at that point, there was this recognition that there's a there's a capability for the ambulatory surgery centers to step up and be part of an emergent event. And the reason I say this is we've been working with reaching out with Haney's and working with them to talk about where we fit in. And I think this is really important because as these conversations continue to go on, we're going to be at the table where we can say, look, we can pick this up or maybe a plan for a county needs to also make sure that the ambulatory surgery centers are at the table with the hospital, with all the other types of health and human service um, providers. And I think that happens in some areas of the state, but I, I can tell you from going through COVID and going through many, many different emergencies at the state level, that that has not always been the case. And so it's, it's, I, I, it's really been, I'm, I'm actually thrilled that this association is getting is being recognized for not only of its ability, but its steadfastness, um, its ability to come together, to be organized, and to to really make a difference. And so I think you're going to see more of it. I would guarantee you're going to see more shifts in the hospital systems, pushing more things outside of healthcare. I think it's a lot of it's being driven already by uh, what we're going to see post-COVID, right? So you're going to see some of those larger, larger systems kind of push things out because there's a lot of trust issues and everything else, right, from your consumers. But I also think from the payer side. So, you know, the one thing that we learned is we've always known it, all of us, right? But dollar only goes so far. When you, when you're looking at a pandemic, you need to utilize your dollars in the most efficient way. So that is going to be driving a lot of this. The other thing that I just want to, I think I have a few minutes. The other thing that I want to raise that I really want people to start thinking about, which is really important, is what else can we do going forward to be in a better position if something like this happens? How do we show what are those other things that we can offer as ASCs to the community infrastructure if and when there's an event. And so I think that's important on a go forward basis because I think that's where we might get a little bit more um, presence at the table. Um, and like I said, we'll see some, I'd love to hear some more ideas from folks about new types of ASCs, you know, because um, I do believe there's a real need and if we can study that and take it forward, this might be the year we start to do that. 
have so, a question, which I, I think I'll have to answer here. Would there be a possibility on easing the requirements on patient escorts during discharge? Some patients live alone and have difficulty arranging for an escort, and some express they don't want their family exposed to uh, the public during COVID-19. That's not a state issue. That's a federal regulation that requires that. Right. So they're, sorry, there's nothing that Lisa can do about that. And John, I also wanted to mention it's also a liability issue, obviously. Yeah. yeah. You know, for Thank you. To be putting people. So, I mean, even if you could do that, that would be, uh, I think, a very, a very risky, risky uh, thing to do. So I, I agree. Yeah. We do have another question, too. I'm uh, not sure how we can answer this, but uh, uh, do you think the insurance companies, maybe, uh, John, you can help. Uh, do you think I, insurance like companies, <laughs> do you think insurance companies are looking at ASCs? in a different way, possibly allowing better reimbursement, uh, specifically for freestanding ASCs? Good question. Yeah, and, and, and I'd, I'd like to address this because this is actually something, um, they are looking at ASCs in a different way. I, I know some, some of you are, are very well aware, particularly if, if you're in the Anthem Blue Cross Blue Shield area, but um, it's 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 become up and it's it's been a little controversial with, with hospitals lately, but, um, so this is not necessarily from a changing a reimbursement standpoint, but some private carriers are starting to develop policies that are saying that patients having outpatient surgery, it has to be done in a freestanding ASC, not in a hospital outpatient department because of the discrepancy in reimbursement. And because obviously we've proven over time, ASCs have proven over time that the outcomes are great and that it's safe. And these insurance companies are aware, obviously, as is you know, Medicare and the federal government, that there's a huge opportunity to save uh, when, when, when patients seek care in, in an ambulatory surgery center versus a hospital. So uh, so we, we've seen um, most recently Anthem Blue Cross Blue Shield, but some uh, at the national level, some other, some other carriers take this policy and they say, you know, that if a, a physician wants to do the surgery, an outpatient surgery in a hospital, they need to get a special authorization because essentially they, they treat it as a, as a medical necessity thing. They say having an outpatient surgery in a hospital is not medically necessary unless in certain circumstances that have to do with the, the, the patient comorbidities and the acuity of the patient's uh, condition. So, uh, you know, it's, it's a bit controversial because hospitals obviously have a big problem with this because they say, you know, they're making a lot of money doing these surgeries and they're saying we want to keep these you know, essentially, it's not fair. Um, but but again, you know, we've been in discussions with the carriers because uh, they've reached out to us. And, and um, you know, obviously, I think this is something that's really good for ASCs. I think we're going to start seeing a lot more commercial carriers doing it. You know, to answer your initial question as, will that mean that reimbursements will improve for, improve for ASCs? Uh, probably not, but volumes might, you know, uh, volumes might because now all of a sudden you might see physicians that don't have uh, privileges in an ASC because they've done all their outpatient surgeries in a hospital now having to come to you and come to different ASCs and say, Hey, um, you know, I, I, I would like to apply for privileges because, you know, I'm having trouble doing my outpatient surgeries on my healthy patients in a hospital because their insurance carriers are saying it's not medically necessary, which I mean, I, I would argue is true. You know, I'm not a physician, but I would argue is absolutely true. And because of that big, uh, cost discrepancy. So again, I, I think it's a it's a great opportunity for us in that sense because of the fact that ASCs are absolutely look or insurance carriers are absolutely looking at ASCs differently uh, than hospitals, but in a good way. So 
I just want to add something. Two two points. I think two points to this. So, you know, recently um, to what John just mentioned about the insurance company, especially one, I'm going to say blues, right? That actually wanted to kind of like encourage or say you have to actually get all of your outpatient done in an ASC. Um, Obviously, one of the large hospital associations were against us. And so it's important, again, that we reached out, right? And one, we reached out to the association and said, like, look, you know, no disparaging comments on our ambulatory surgery centers because we do good work. Two, reaching out to the other um, the other hospital associations, saying, "Look, at, we're we're not doing that. So we're not saying that. We're not saying anything against it or for it. We're going to just try to be silent on this because we believe it's about patient care." So I believe you're going to see a much more um, robust discussion about this in the coming months, um, as you start to see probably in the fall, folks start to talk about uh, the budget. And the reason I say that is because if this discussion's happening and uh, you have financial services, Department of Financial Services, DFS, that's actually involved in this, it's close to the governor's office, controller, looking at like, hey, what's our budget going to look like? Is this a position that maybe Medicaid takes for certain things? Now, we're a long way from there, but I'm just saying that is a possibility. Can I ask you about... um uh, infection control. There's been a number of attempts in the last couple sessions to require ambulatory surgery centers to have an infection control consultant or expert certified, uh, similar to what New Jersey has. Do you want to want to talk about that for a second? I don't think it came up this year, but I'm not sure about that. It yeah. didn't, but in the final rule, in CMS's final rule, um, for certain provider types, so nursing homes, They have to have in the final rule as of 2019, they had to have an infection control preventionist, EPIC, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, APIC certified. So I I, right. So I wouldn't be surprised if because there's lots of discussions and lots of policies getting thrown around right now that that is not the next requirement, not just ASCs, right? not just freestanding, but also for, for the others. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised. I also want to note, um, just because it came out last night, I believe, um, you know, we've had the question of, okay, now that people are vaccinated, if they come to us and say they're vaccinated, right? Like, do we still have to test and all these things, right? And so I've been pushing, as we always can do, right? You know, consider yourself a professional nudge. And, um, you know, something just came out for the nursing homes and assisted living and ACFs that they don't have to do testing on their employees every two weeks if they can prove they're vaccinated. And so I'm hoping we're going to start to see have more of these other conversations and changes as well coming forward as the vaccination rates continue to go above 70%. I guess just jumping back really quickly to, to, this is something I wanted to point about about the association and where it might get important is um, with regards to the policies of of uh, you know payers to uh, you know to uh, d- directs uh, to ambulatory surgery centers cases. Um, you know I, I think one thing that that we're looking out for and we're cognizant of and I think there's a concern of is you know obviously right now the hospital association that you that you mentioned is doing some publicity around it to try and uh, to try and put some pressure on 
uh, you know, an insurance company to not have that policy. Uh, there is some concern that that pressure might uh, move from one of uh, PR to one of uh, legislative efforts, you know, and, and actually try and maybe next year push for uh, a piece of legislation that says insurance companies cannot, um, you know, make it more difficult for these patients to go to hospitals versus ambulatory surgery centers. And, and again, I think that's very powerful and they have a lot, a lot of money. So, uh, you know, I think it's important that, that people understand that that's another example of something that as an association that we, you know, we're keeping an eye on that we're going to make sure that, you know, should that messaging instead of if they start redirecting that from the public, which is what they're doing now, and it's probably not very effective towards legislators and trying to drive some type of requirement um, that, you know, that we're making sure that, again, the, the, the interests of ASCs are being protected, uh, but not just that, that that the reputation of ASCs aren't, aren't being, um, you know, slandered, I guess, by by some of the messaging that might be going not to the public, but to legislators and making sure the legislators are hearing from us and hearing our side of the story. You have another question here. How about the expiration on the Excelsior Pass? What does that mean? Patients have to be tested? That's uh, a great question. Yeah, so actually, I, I, I can speak to that too. So basically, um, right now, expiration on the Excelsior Pass should not be an issue for quite some time. Anyone that does have an expiration on it, all they need to do is go get another Excelsior Pass. Essentially, people who got one early, it was good for, I, I think, 90 days. And then they, if you got another one, it was good for six months. And now it's actually up to a year. So if you, if somebody has an Excelsior Pass that says it's expired, all they have to do is get another Excelsior Pass and put it in their wallet. They don't need another vaccination. They don't need to get tested. Get the, a, a new one the same way you got the first one put it in your wallet and that one's going to have an expiration date that is a full year out from when you had your second, uh, the second dose for that patient. It's a timeout on the, it's on, it's a, an app issue, not a, not the approval of the pass issue. Right. So it, that's what John's saying. If they put it in, if they took their pass on their application quickly, soon after they got their two week, they've extended it now. So it should be easy. Okay. No, I just wanted to, uh, to the point we were discussing before, about driving patients into, you know, the, with the insurance companies, driving patients to ASCs versus hospital outpatient centers. Um, it, 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 one way you do that, and, and there's many ways to do that, but the insurance companies need to look into um, the incentive for the patient to come and building that into uh, the co-payments or the core sharing. And and we, we don't talk about that a lot. We don't get Payers to participate in. I would love to have payers on in this um, conference, or at least some representative of, of them, uh, because that is the important. You know, the patients look at what is this costing me, and sometimes it's cheaper for the patient to go to the hospital. You know, they don't have to pay payment or the or the um, uh, coinsurance or or what. They don't really care what the insurance company is paying the hospital versus. Now, the, the insurance company cares, but you also have to take into the consideration what, what's incenting the patient to come. And, and we talk about all those, the quality, the efficiency. You don't have to spend six hours in, in the hospital for a colonoscopy, and you can be in and out in 90 minutes and all that stuff. But I think the, um, 
that needs to be addressed and looked at and understood a little bit better what the cost to the patient is. So that's actually a great idea is to see if we could get to meet with some of the, a couple of the big providers, like the payers. So, or even the health plan association to talk to them and bring them to one of our meetings or conferences. Um, So that's a great idea because this is what they want. This is what they want. Um, So that's a good point, Helen. And to finish out our special New York State Association of Ambulatory Surgery Centers episode, we uh, interviewed several of the uh, speakers during the conference, and we uh, discussed various issues that are of interest to not only people in New York State, Mm -hmm. but also throughout the country. So let's listen to this roundtable. So this is John Gailey and Sue, and we're here uh, with uh, some of the speakers from the New York State Association meeting in in June. And I'd like to introduce uh, Ann Geyer. Doria uh, Cipriani and Sherry Eckert Burr, uh, three of the speakers that we have. And also with me are uh, Lori Rodericks and Jeffrey Flynn, who, uh, Lori, of course, is our uh, Director of Clinical Services for Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, and Jeffrey is the Vice President and the Program Chair for the State Association. So welcome, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And I'm going to start with you. So the, the big question I have for you is what was the biggest takeaway? You did a, a wonderful session on peer review, which is a really, really hot topic right now. Uh, you and I are, and, and you and I and Lori, of course, are our surveyors with HHC. It's uh, one of those common citations that we have out there for uh, for our centers. And uh, when we were putting together the program for uh, this, uh, this uh, conference, uh, peer review uh, popped to the top of the list. It's something we had talked about a couple years ago, Jeffrey, right? I think like three years ago. It was a very mm-hmm. popular session, so we knew it was time to talk about it again. So can you uh, kind of just lead off with some of the key takeaways that you uh, had with your presentation? Sure. Well, as a AAAHC surveyor, one of the areas, one of the top three areas that I see that people struggle with is peer review. And I do a lot of speaking on peer review. And so this was a very timely subject. So in peer review, one of the citations that I give the most often or consultative comment, but it's usually a citation, is allied health personnel are not being peer reviewed. And that's a key factor. People say, well, I didn't know I had to do them. There's a whole section in AAAHC about peer review done on allied health. And then they don't understand who allied health is. If you use CRNAs, or PAs, those are allied health. And you've got anybody who's a credentialed provider should be peer reviewed. Well, then they say, well, what kind of peer review? It's whatever your centers develop. So you've got to do it. That's a a frequent place that people fall down on. The second one is that the administrator thinks that one doctor does the peer review or that the administrator is responsible for doing all of the prep work for the peer review. No, that can be delegated because you're not... When you're doing the prep work, which is pulling the charts, amassing the charts that have had incident reports, whatever it is, you can delegate that. That's a clerical function. And people don't realize that. And I go in and they're overwhelmed, the administrators are, during a survey because they couldn't do it all. So I try to teach them how to do it. And the third part and probably the key part is to make peer review meaningful, that you have to have things that your doctors are going to buy in to reviewing so that peer review is not a medical chart audit. And that's the big deal. It's not to make sure that all the forms are on the chart and everybody signed all the forms. And that's a common misconception. They don't understand how to create 
meaningful peer review. And what I did during the presentation was to give them some suggestions on how to do it. And I did it by anesthesia and I did it by surgery. And it involves the doctors that you have working with you. It's a sit them down, get their heads together and say, what is important to anesthesia? What do we need to look at that can make or break whether you have a provider that's providing high quality care and a provider who's just checking off all the boxes? And with surgery, it includes things like transfers and things like that. So the three takeaways are allied health has to be peer reviewed. And number two, you need to delegate some of that work so you're not overwhelmed. Number three, that you develop meaningful peer review tools, which I provided a lot of the tools during the talk for your use. So, and one of the other uh, issues that I tend to find um, with peer review is that people feel that the chart reviews are the only elements in peer review. In other words, as part of the recredentialing uh, process, that the only thing that they have done in the past two to three years, depending upon their state, um, is do uh, random chart audits. And that really is not the total package for peer review. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? I will. I think that what you're talking about is exactly what I was saying about the medical chart audits. First, you start with what I call your incident reports or your your peer review for cause. Something happened, it involved one of your providers, that's done immediately. And you don't wait till the end of the quarter to do that. When you get the incident reports and you look at that immediately and you start making the adjustments that you need to make. Then you have, depending on how your policy is written, Then you have um, your peer review that's, I call it, to fill in the gap. Because if you say, if you have to review two charts or 5% in a certain time period or whichever is greater, you need to fill in that number. So that's where you do the random peer review on the provider. And you're going to have somebody, I just print out all of the cases that they've done for the last quarter. And you delegate that to someone to just randomly pull charts. So when they randomly pull charts, what are they going to look at? Well, you don't want them to just look at medical chart audits to see that all the blanks are filled in. You use the criteria that somebody's screening for, like a tr- like um, well, transfer would be a cause. Um, you're looking for the criteria. So for anesthesia, if part of your criteria are vital signs that are out of the normal range that your anesthesiologists have set aside, they've named what those ranges are. That chart is going to be reviewed for anesthesia. Um, and you put that form on there and, and what's appropriate for that. So it's not just going through and making sure that the charts are complete. And I think that's a common misconception. Thanks so much, Ann. So uh, next, I want to talk to uh, Doria Cipriani, who, who did a wonderful presentation on OSHA, which uh, has been one of my uh, pet issues lately, especially with N95s, which I'm sure you probably are tired of talking about, but uh, as am I. Can you give us a, a feel for uh, your uh, presentation and the types of issues that um, you feel are the most important to get to our audience? Sure, John. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, I, I spoke about uh, common OSHA citations relating to uh, coronavirus, and there were a number. The most impactful uh, in our ASCs had been the implementation of the Respiratory Protection Program, to yeah. your point, right? And, you know, in the hospital setting, a robust respiratory protection program was rather commonplace. Mm -hmm. And we in our ASCs had to come up to speed rather quickly to implement such a a robust program as well. So there were a number of challenges identified and particularly around bringing the respirators into our center. And, you know, 
my biggest take takeaway after doing the research to present was you know, don't be afraid of the OSHA and the other uh, big resources out there to actually use them because they provide really fabulous resource and information readily available to us and, and particularly in a crisis situation to just really network. We cannot do this alone and we have to step this, step through this together and really network. Um, and fortunately, we are coming around to the other side and moving away from many of those barriers early on, getting fit testing supplies and actually getting our hands on respirators. So we're, we're coming around to being in a better, a better place. Likely we're going to be living with a respiratory protection program as part of who we are, which isn't a bad thing. And my guess is that most of us out there and here are actually getting quite good at it or have gotten quite good at it uh, yeah. to be able to speak on it. Yeah, we've uh, we found recently when we go to our clients or new centers or during a survey that uh, people still centers don't always know about the requirements for an N95, or they're still putting their N95 masks into a paper bag, thinking that that'll be okay. And we know that that you know we're kind of past that period right now. And I I'll tell you the other other thing that I've been running into. I, I I had this long conversation with one of our centers the other day, and they said, "Oh yeah, we were using N95s." I I started off in this whole conversation about what you need to do. And then I actually looked at one of them that was wearing a mask and it was a KN95. And I said, oh, forget everything I just said. You're not wearing a respirator. So uh, I agree with you. Let's talk about that for a second here is that as we move forward, I'm afraid, I think we all agree that uh, we're not done with pandemics. Uh, This one's over with, um, but uh, I think we've learned that perhaps we should have a respiratory protection program in at all times, that perhaps we should keep uh, our supplies for fit testing around uh, and do those medical evaluations, you know, all those elements that are required for this, just so that we can be ready for the next period and buy the supplies now for right. the fit testing by the N95s while we can st- while we can get them quickly. So you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure, I absolutely agree. I think, you know, we learn from, you know, teachable moments and we move forward from them and create that team and have a robust team who is familiar and your, your go-to people in your center who have their heads, if you will, wrapped around the program. And we don't want to be caught in a place where we were, you know, 13 or 14 months ago where we could not get our hands on PPE, you know, if we think back a few years ago when Ebola arrived on the scene, fortunately, it did not get to the place where uh, coronavirus had, and, and we all had become really familiar with uh, donning and doffing PPE. So that is a common um, phrase for us now. And, and I believe if we forecast for the respiratory component of this, you know, we're going to be really terrific at it. You know, it's, it's not going to go away likely, and it should become part of who we are to be prepared and for the next round. It's such a pleasure to have somebody that knows about OSHA. You know, one of my dear friends, unfortunately, passed away during uh-huh. um, coronavirus, from the coronavirus, who was, uh, you know, my go-to person for OSHA. Sorry, John. So uh, while I've got you, and I think Jeffrey will feel the same way, what, what are some other things that surgery centers really need to be keeping on top of with regard to OSHA? So I, I think in our space is the um, – so if you think about who OSHA is and what they do, their, their goal is to keep the employees safe, uh, safe, establish a safe workplace environment. And that's really the goal. And that's a great goal. Mm-hmm. So um, aside from the respiratory, it's the exposure protection program, right? You want to have a tight exposure protection program that's for blood, you know, blood and body fluid exposure, be it a splash or a stick. You want to be ready to go if there's an event in real time to have a re- uh, 
be proactive and not reactive. You know, you should be poised, have a partner that you're going to send your staff out for assessment, have your blood draw kits ready to go. Yeah. Um, be prepared on how you're going to uh, address your source patient. It, it should be ready to go. Everyone should know what it is, where it is, your, your weekday staff, if you work weekends who often are per diem crew, they should all know. Um, the last thing you want is to have an exposure and, and a frightened, potentially uh, exposed individual who no one knows what to do with them. So exposure control plan in, in the center is really paramount. And we're going to end with the other point that I want to make, and that is that OSHA is just not always about N95s, nor is it only about uh, bloodborne pathogens, but there are still all those other OSHA rules that we have to follow, too. Do you have any insights or any comment about that? Yes, absolutely. There, there's many, many of them, you know, um, certainly more than an hour's conversation, right. you know, a, full, a full day event. And, they, and their website is fabulous. They have a, a yeah. comprehensive website. There's an ASC checklist specific to ASCs. Um, I think it's a really valuable tool to take a look at. And yes, John, there are many. Um, yeah. and, and they want to help us. OSHA, they also have a, a, a consultation program available in every state. They'll come onto your site for free and they'll do a citation-free survey and they'll consult with you, identify hazards and, and help you step through uh, putting an action plan together to correct them, which is a great program. And we'll, we'll put some links on uh, for the podcast notes for this, too. Uh, thank you, Dory, for bringing that up. And I absolutely agree. With, we develop our programs uh, at Age Strategies based upon the OSHA website. It's, I mean, you know, yes. the information's up there. The information's free. You don't have to pay for it. You don't have to go out and, you know, pay a high price uh, unless you want to, you know, to have, uh, you know, a consultant come in, uh, though we appreciate that, to look into it. A lot of that information is freely available there. And we and you really, you, as even as an ASC, you should be visiting that site regularly. Thank you, Dorian. Yes, you're welcome. So, so I have uh, Sherry Eckert-Burr. We've been having a lot of technical problems with uh, getting her uh, her voice here. So I, I'm, I'm sorry that the sound quality won't be that great. But welcome, Sherry. You did a great presentation on... Uh, high-level disinfection of endoscopy equipment, basically, in the uh, endoscopy area. And I have with me Lori Rodericks, who is far better able to uh, ask questions about this. I know she was bugging you and your your partner in the uh, session about this. So uh, can you, uh, so I'm going to call on Lori to ask the, the tougher questions here. But can you give us an idea or kind of uh, tell us what you feel are the big takeaways from your session? Well, I feel like, thank you for asking me. Uh, I feel like one of the important things that we discussed yesterday was that it, it's not all on one person to, to find where cross-contamination can hurt, uh, happen, and that it, it really does take a team and everyone being vigilant to have best practice anywhere that you're working. And, you know, some of the strategies we discussed were just ideas that they could use that would help make their work easier in decreasing cross-contamination and keeping themselves safe while they're doing it, as well as preparing instruments that are safe for their patients. On that note, I have a, a question, um, and I did pose it yesterday, and your colleague, Ian, was very nice in responding to me, and I'm, I'm looking for the hard support, but I was in a, I've been in a number of centers and many of them use um, a product that is, uh, you know, I don't want to go on record for the product, but um, it's, it's, it's kind of like a, a bag 
that you would put your scopes in. And um, they use that for transporting their scopes from the procedure room to the, um, you know, the processing area of the center. And it causes me a little angst when I see that happening, um, just because I was under the impression that it should be a hard container that's impervious, um, leak-proof, has a lid, you know, you know, is labeled. And, you know, many of the centers are putting the biohazard label directly on the bag. But um, when Anne responded, um, she said that it does not meet the guidelines and the standards. Now, the company sent me a uh, document that tells us that it is in compliance with an OSHA 1910.1030. And I was looking all over yesterday to find that proof or, you know, that support. And the only thing in the OSHA that I could find regarding the 1910-1030 was more so for um, sharks. And there was actually a question posed by someone in the OSHA thing regarding how they transport their equipment because they must transport out of their center and they use a hard container and blah, blah, blah. And the response, you know, are they transporting their equipment appropriately? And the response was that it's preventing sharks um, injury. So yes, but it's not just about sharks injury. It's also about um, potential cross-contamination and um, exposure and splashes and whatnot. So um, I looked in AORN today and it doesn't specify that it has to be hard-sided. And that's what um, how Anne had responded. So I, I'm not sure where I can find that. I, I, I will call my AORN hotline next week and they'll cringe when they see my phone number. But um, I'm just having a, a devil of a time finding that. And I've, I wrote, reached out to SGNA today. Okay, well, let me give you a little bit more context in what you covered. And I mean, you, your impression is right on. So please be aware of that. But in Amy, in AORN, and it is under, I don't know if it's recommendation three or recommendation four. I forget exactly where they go to uh, point of use treatment that they discuss that it should be in a rigid puncture-resistant container. So not necessarily, you know, they say rigid puncture-resistant. Now, it does not require a lid, but it does require that it be covered. Uh, And SGNA also suggests this. And those are the three main organizations uh, of maybe the top five that give recommendations for flexible endoscope processing. So I can send those to you. If you'll text me your uh, email, I'll be happy to share that information and the exact citations for you. But what it does is, like you said, it protects the people uh, with that universal biohazard symbol so that people see you're transporting contaminated medical devices of some type. But it also uh, prevents leak spills. And if you've ever been in the ambulatory surgery centers, and it's not just there, it is, I, I do this worldwide and I see them using the cinch pads. And you would be surprised how many times we see 
the tip of the scope that is very unwieldy and sort of has a mind of its own. And it will creep out of the, that cinch pad and it'll be dripping stuff down the hallway behind people. So it doesn't contain it as well as it should. I actually had that situation occur in one of my centers is that I was explaining to them that they needed to have a hard uh, – I'm going to bring Doria into it in this a second here. I was walking down the hallway with them as they're carrying the cinch sack down the hallway, and they said, well, you know, there's no problem with it. It, You know, it, it contains all this. And I, and I said, well, look behind you, and, and behind was this trail of fluid. You know, I mean, I, I don't know that it's really possible to control it if, uh, you know, the 90 percent of the situations you're going to have a, a problem. And Doria, to that point, you're going to have an OSHA issue because now you got a tripping hazard in addition to the, the whole. Uh, well, there's going. another side to that, John. Yeah. And that is, is when you have that rigid sided container, it protects the scope from damage. And we actually have people in hospitals that have done studies and looked at the significant savings in not having scopes damage because if you've ever seen people carry instruments, they're not always real vigilant in the way they handle them. And those scopes are long, they're unwieldy, and many times people are not taught how to handle a scope so that it doesn't get away from them. And in those cinch pads, they're very nice in that they have an absorbent pad in them. So we really encourage people to use that absorbent pad, not only for during the procedure, but then after they've done their point of use treatment to absorb any residual moisture so that it doesn't leak out uh, when they put it into that rigid container. And it adds a little extra layer of padding for the scope. So again, you're decreasing the opportunity for damaging your scope and protecting from leaks and spillage and then covering it and making sure that other people are not exposed. Yeah, I, I guess the only problem that I have is um, in that AORN standard, it says leak-proof, puncture-resistant, and large enough to contain all contents. I don't see rigid anywhere. So, okay. Laurie, I agree with you, right? There's a lot of uh, wiggle room, if you will, for interpretation. You know, we think about best practice and infection control. Um, cost savings, yes, but we, we, we kind of want to pick and choose, right, when we're going to apply, yeah. prioritize cost savings over perhaps infection control. And a couple of things to think about when citing the organization, your infection control program, if you're going to cite a particular program, you want to be sure you're citing a program that you can actually live up to all of their requirements. Uh, you know, from an OSHA so there may not be a language in an OSHA standard that says, gee, you have to transport your scopes in a rigid container. OSHA has an out, if you will. They have what's called a general duty clause that they can cite. And if uh, there's a recognized hazard and there's a known fix, so they could cite under a general duty clause for saying, hey, we have a hazard here with you know, body fluids dripping down the hallway. And if you put this in a tight, hard-covered box, you'll be keeping us all in good shape. So we may not always find it in OSHA, the verbatim, but they have this out, if you will, a general duty clause. So, and, I- and I'd like to add something else to that. You know, we've been working on the Amy uh, revision for ST91, which I think we finally come to a final uh, revision of it, uh, which should be published. And the new guidelines coming out, uh, both Amy and AORN, AORN this year is looking at revising their endoscopy 
reprocessing. And both of these guidelines are going to be more prescriptive and not as vague as they have been in the past because we haven't had evidence. And now we've had people that have done studies, they've looked at it, they've actually actually published their research or their um, quality improvement projects so that other people can learn from them. And I think that's going to be included in, well, I know it is in Amy, going to be included in these new publications that will be uh, published. Uh, AORN will be published next year, and Amy should be published this year. Well, I could give both of you like very huge air hugs. <laughs> you know, only because it's it's very difficult when a when an organization shows you this thing from the company saying it's okay, and it's like, but it really isn't safe. You don't understand. <laughs> well, here's another thing too, and you know, I I am an OR nurse for many years, and I have always had trust but verify. And just because somebody puts a something in a letter on a letterhead, that does not add validation for me that this is an acceptable practice. I want to know what their evidence is behind it that shows that this is safe and. There have been no leaks. There have been little to no opportunity for cross contamination, for injury to a patient, injury to the or damage to the uh, piece of equipment, or to the person that has to do the handling of it. So the evidence is extremely critical. Not just the letter somebody has signed saying, "Oh, it's okay to do this." <laughs> so I'd like to actually bring all of our uh, our panelists, and and this has been great because there has been great di- dialogue. I'm going to ask Anne to join us again too. Uh, Anne, uh, of course, talked about peer review, uh, but as I'm listening to this conversation going on, a couple things come to mind: uh, manufacturers' instructions and how sometimes they conflict. Uh, Lori, to your point, you know the manufacturers' instructions in this case are conflicting with uh, with you know other. Uh, uh, regulations out there. We have to keep in mind, you know, who is the AHJ? Who's the uh, agency having jurisdiction here? You know, so for example, for the situation that they're talking about, that uh, cinch sack, whatever, I, uh, bag, uh, whatever it is, you know, the manufacturer is giving a reference to OSHA, but OSHA in that particular situation doesn't have total jurisdiction. Uh, and certainly when, uh, Lori, to your point, it seems like they were quoting the wrong section. Again, that's why I bring Dorian into it also, because uh, they were quoting the incorrect section of that regulation. So, you know, we as surveyors, Ann, Lori, and myself, uh, we're always saying, read the manufacturer's instructions, but we probably should always put a codicil into that. We need to use common sense, too. It should make sense in, in our space and, and what appears to be known to be, yeah. you know, evidence-based best practice. Yeah, if you right. see well, you fluid know, leak, leaking down the, the hallway, <laughs> there's just so uh, many problems John, with there, there's another resource that you might want to consider is Sylvia Garcia there at the Joint Commission. And, you know, she's an infection preventionist, and she has been very uh, open in giving information about what they're looking for when they do their auditing, and they start with the regulatory, and then they go to the instructions for use, and then they go to guidelines, and they have a very specific prioritization of what they uh, look for. So, Good point. And she's a wonderful resource. I'll try to scope her out. 
So uh, let me ask another uh, uh, general question for everybody, just putting it out there. So where are we going from here? Um, you know, I am tired of talking about COVID-19. Um, I mean, I, I think we're, uh, we're beating that dead horse. Um, but the question really is a little bit more general here. What, you know, what is, what is the future of regulations? You know, we know we have a new administration in there. We know we're waiting for some new CMS regulations. We know the agencies are, are out there to, to make sure that we are protecting the public, the protecting our patients here. What do you think uh, the ramifications of, uh, in other words, how is this all going to affect our regulatory environment? And, and uh, Doria, to, you know, a good question for you is how frequently do you think we're going to start? Are we going to start seeing uh, OSHA inspectors out there? We haven't in the surgery center industry for a while, but are we going to see that more frequently? So there's been lots of communication um, to the field, the OSHA field teams. If you go on their site, really interesting memos where they, they, ASCs are on the radar. Yeah. You know, and there's lots of information out there that the and it's interesting that they've been educated to use discretion early on in the pandemic. They were educated to use discretion when they were assessing programs and and they have their finger on the pulse as to the updated guidance as relates to when the supply chain opening up. And then they get the updated education to, OK, they all should be in good shape and meeting the requirements of the standard. So I think that um, ASCs. In as much as the hospital setting, our fair game, if you will, open for anyone to walk in the door. Um, you know, to your question, John, of where, where we are going now is, um, you know, New York State has something on the table uh, in looking toward the fall of 2021 for employers to allow uh, employees to create a safety committee of yeah. their own. So that's it's called the HERO Act fantastic. that you're referring to. Yeah. HERO Act, yes, yeah. thank you. So that shaping a our world's a little differently. Yeah. Yeah. We've been trying to uh, get our clients uh, a little bit prepared for that HERO Act. And Jeffrey, to that point, we, during the uh, uh, fall conference, we definitely have to have a speaker. Hopefully by then we'll start to have some regulations. Right now it's just in law. The regulations haven't been uh, produced yet uh, mm -hmm. for this, but it, as Doria indicated, it could have some significant, Im a significant impact on our, our surgery centers and mm -hmm. another layer in addition to what we already have. Mm -hmm. Done a poll of, on one of your podcasts asking people if they've had any OSHA visits. I think because your podcast has a national reach, and I'd yeah. be really curious. Do you remember a few years ago? Well, it's probably been five to ten years ago now when the government allocated money for five states to have OSHA inspections. Yeah. To, and they were looking for whether your employees were protected. Um, that was a big deal. Some of my centers had those OSHA inspections and it was it was tough because they stayed for two days and they looked at everything. But I'd be curious how many people is it ramping up or is it still at the uh, early stages? Right. And I agree. And we haven't uh, we have not heard yet about any. OSHA actions. I think right now they are definitely in the hospitals. We know that, and I think it's low-hanging fruit too. Remember, so one point we probably should make here is that when OSHA comes out and does a survey, it's not like uh, Lori, Ann, and I going out and doing a survey. We we have no authority to find people, and it's only a couple states that uh, actually do find um, if there is a violation of the state regulations. But OSHA, on the other hand, um, can have some significant uh, fines out there. That, to the tune of over $4 million as of January 2021 in the healthcare setting. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, and, and the individual, and, and then it's by um, incident, too. So, it's not just 
um, right. depending upon the, the type of citation, it, it could uh, ramp up very quickly. I mm -hmm. literally put a surgery center out of business. Uh, and that's one of the reasons that I just really caution all of our listeners out there about being very careful with those N95 masks and, and your use of it. Um, and the fact that they don't all understand right now that uh, they, they, they can only be used basically for a short period of time. You can't reuse them at this point. Any, uh, Aren't you also finding that the fit test is just not non-existent in a number of the centers? Or even though they have the N95s, they're just simply not doing fit tests. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that very is very difficult to find too. Yeah, a, actually, a lot of a lot of centers think they're grandfathered that they don't have to do that because there was that temporary, you know, um, not so much a waiver, but you know, a good faith um, effort was accepted. But it's it's well past good faith now. Right. <laughs> well, yeah, and, exactly. and making sure that you're doing it on the specific model of. Uh, respirator that you have in your center. We have one center that bought, you know, five, ten different models of it. You know, they're fit testing like constantly in order to be able to move back and forth between the different models. You have to use a separate fit test for every model or every brand that you use. Yeah. And we can work with our hospital partner, you know, if, uh, if some of the staff are in the hospital and they're fit tested with the same model, that yeah. you're using in your center, you certainly can, you know, network and borrow a copy of that document. That's, that's right. As long as you have all that information in house, that you you can't you can't say, well, you're gonna have to go to the hospital to get that information. You have to have a copy of that information available. Right. Exactly. In your center. So. Okay, I, and I promised I was not going to spend too much time on N95s. This is good, I mean, because I think we've been uh, talking quite a bit about uh, endoscopy too. Uh, any other last minute thoughts about the regulatory environment that we're walking into? One of the things I'd like to bring up is as many hospitals as I am, I see there is a definite, a definite lack of education on many of the staff members' parts as to the different types of regulations and why policies and procedures are the way they are and how those decisions are made for the practices that they have. We still see a lot of people doing We've always done it that way yeah. without the supporting education underneath of it to say, well, okay, that may be acceptable practice, but why aren't we striving for best practice? That's a very good point. And actually, mm -hmm. uh, a couple episodes ago, uh, those uh, regular listeners out there know that we have now a staff edition of the podcast. And, and that was exactly what we, uh, we wanted to talk about is helping, you know, the staff edition is meant for in-services for our surgery centers. It's become very popular. And one of the, uh, one of the additions or one of the episodes we did was about the regulatory environment in which ASCs uh, exist. Uh, and that all those regulations are out there. They're available for anybody. You don't have to pay to get them. You can uh, you can look at them on the internet. But making sure that uh, that staff understand um, the heavy regulatory burden that we have, and that I, I none of us is a surveyor. Uh, you can't say to me, even though they try, uh, that we've always done it this way. That is not. Uh, uh, you know, if they feel that they're going to get, they're going to avoid a citation by saying that they've always done it that way. That's absolutely not the truth. You know what? Also, um, to to piggyback on that, I think um, if a center wasn't cited on it in a prior survey, they feel like they're okay. And unfortunately, that's not always the case because 
the surveyor is uh, looking with different eyes every time they go. Yeah. Just because I wasn't sighted prior doesn't mean that the next surveyor is not going to see that I'm not doing things um, in best practice or, you know, safest manner, that sort of thing. So it's a. Or, or we get the surveyor was here and they never said anything about what we're doing. So we're going to continue to do it. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, very good point. Well, and you're looking at, or, well, our listeners are hearing three surveyors. I will tell you that the three of us, um, we don't care. I, am I tr- correct, everyone? <laughs> we don't care what the prior survey did. Sometimes we don't even see what uh, everything that the prior surveyor uh, said. Um, we're going to cite whatever we see, so uh, be prepared for it. I, I do not tell me that uh, it was never cited before. In- I do want to thank our uh, three speakers, Ann, Doria, and Sherry. Uh, this has been a pleasure to, to be able to interview you, and uh, thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Thanks for having Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks, everybody. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye. We would like to thank our sponsor, Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, the nation's leading regulatory compliance resource for ambulatory surgery centers. For more information about their services, please visit ah-strategies.com, email them at info at ah-strategies.com, or call John Gailey directly at 585-594-1167. This podcast is an educational and operational tool and is not intended to be a comprehensive resource for all rules, regulations, and standards that an ambulatory surgery center must meet. The advice provided should not be considered as, nor does it constitute legal advice or opinion. When reviewing specific situations involving legal and regulatory issues, attorneys and other professionals should be consulted. This has been a production of Eden Group Development. All rights are reserved. If you're interested in advertising or sponsoring the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, please email us at info at ASCPodcast.com. We would love to hear your comments and questions. Please email us at comments at ASCPodcast.com.